Well, good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful summer day. We love these uh, weekends. Uh, it's great to see you here this morning, and it's great to be uh, worshiping uh, God together. Well, one of the things as a parent that I have often thought is uh, a primary role for me is that my, my role is to help raise uh, healthy, independent kids. And uh, so that, for me, uh, is a high priority. And maybe it's because I was so hardwired for independence when I was younger. Uh, I was one who longed for freedom in lots of different ways, even though I grew up in a great household and had a wonderful family, uh, grew up on a farm and had all kinds of blessings. And yet, I remember I moved out of the house at 16 years old. Uh, I went to RJC. Some of you know that place, Rostron Junior College, a residential school for grade 11. And... uh, residential school. Hmm. Um, anyways, and, and I never moved home since. And it was like, that was a season, you know, for me that was done. And I, even though I love my family and so on, I just wanted independence and I wanted to be on my own. And so even in the summers that followed, I went and worked at other people's friends' places in other cities and I did all kinds of different things and it was great. But yet at the same time, I don't think that I run from long commitments. Like I don't think that I'm always trying to get away from commitments. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with long commitments. I worked at Columbia Bible College, as many of you know, for about 10 years. And that was a fairly long commitment. And I've worked here now and been part of this staff at uh, Forest Grove for almost 20 years. And so that's a fairly long commitment. And so 30 years in only two places is, I think, uh, a fairly long commitment. So I don't believe that I, I run from those things. In fact, I haven't felt restricted in my work. I felt a lot of freedom uh, in my work, in both of those uh, settings, the setting as well too. And so it's funny that it's not the time commitment that limits our freedom or that we feel restricted in any way, but it's usually more it's the relationships. Uh, and I remember uh, one when I was uh, single and, and just in university and I had a roommate and I was living here in Saskatoon and for some reason the relationship just got weird and he and I weren't getting along, and it was like a summer that I wanted to forget. Because every time I went home to my house, I just remember feeling like it was just like a prison. And it's like, ugh, this relationship is so awkward and strange. And as soon as I moved out of that place, I remember feeling freedom. And I'm sure it felt that way for him as well, too. But on the other hand, other, another relationship... Uh, that is long-term, is uh, tomorrow actually marks 30 years of marriage for Lisa and I. Yes, thank you. My beautiful wife, Lisa, we were born on July 8th, 1989. Born, married. We were married on July 8th, 1989. And uh, that's a long commitment. And I, I'm here to say I'm locked in, I'm committed, I'm not going anywhere, Lisa, just so you know. Uh, and yet I feel free. So it's not like the, the long-term commitment is a hindrance to freedom. And so my point is, is that it's, it's not the longevity of something, it's more the relationships that happen that make us feel free or not. And we often think that freedom is having no restraints or no commitments, Uh, But that's not true. Freedom is actually having the right restraints and the right commitments, um, and then we feel free. So it's not just freedom from something, but it's freedom 
to something through these right and healthy commitments. And so it seems like we all long for freedom. I think most of us do anyway, some of us more than others, but it looks different for each one of us, doesn't it? It feels different. And if I were to ask you to define freedom, and if you get the the sermon study guide, and if your small group is meeting through the summer, it's one of the questions there. How would you define freedom? What does it look like or feel like uh, for you? I remember a number of years ago uh, with my kids, and I was thinking that I was clever, and I don't know why I, I did this, but I I came up with this, what I thought was a really clever saying about, you know, I was talking about my passions for life, and it was this freedom thing that somehow I was going on a rant about with my kids or something. And so I came up with this sort of slogan. I called it like my bumper sticker. Now it would be your tweet if you use Twitter or whatever. And, and this is, and I couldn't even remember what it was. And it, actually it was Jody who repeated it back to me. It tells you how much it, in, it was in, on their heads. So here it is. The key to happiness is freedom. The key to freedom is courage. And the key to courage is stupidity. So now, don't write that down, please. Don't remember it. It's not very good. Uh, but it was one of those things that seemed clever and fun at the time. Um, and I thought it was kind of cool. But then I, I watched this movie uh, that some of you might remember. It was called We Bought a Zoo. And uh, in that movie, there was one character, and I think his name was Benjamin Mee. And he had this great moment or this great line in the movie that sort of reflected a little bit of, of a my quote, and it said this, You know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. I remember when I saw that movie and I thought, hey, maybe my slogan's not so bad. There's kind of a parallel there. But I want to have us look at some better quotes and some better definitions of freedom even than these two. Um... As we long for freedom in whatever form, we, again, we see it expressed and we feel it in different ways. The Apostle Paul did as well. And I want to, we're going to focus primarily on Hebrews 12 in just a minute, but I want to start in Galatians and just a few things that Paul says in Galatians about freedom. Because Paul reminds us that freedom is being a slave to the right thing, actually. He says that freedom, again, is not being free of all encumbrances, but that we're all a slave to something, so pick carefully and be aware and be diligent. And Galatians 5 is a chapter that talks a fair bit about freedom, and let me just read a couple of the verses there. It starts off in verse 1. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And what Paul was talking about here were, as he was writing to the church in Galatia, they were people who were now adding back into the gospel of Jesus Christ other things, requirements from the law of Moses, specifically circumcision, and saying that these new Gentile believers needed to get circumcised in order to be a true believer. And Paul is countering that and says, why would you do that? Why would you put on this yoke of slavery again? You are set free in this new gospel. And he says, so don't add anything. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so that's what he's talking about in this verse that he's speaking to here. Then in Galatians 5.13, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And so he's going on and he's saying now, not only are you free from circumcision and these requirements of the law of Moses, but also that doesn't mean that you just do whatever you want. That doesn't mean that you just live out your sinful nature and kind of do whatever you want. You were still called to holiness. And freedom, in fact, is found in holiness. 
And so what Paul is encouraging them is don't just give in to your fleshly nature. Uh, you're not free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. In Galatians 5.17, he says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So that you are, so you, that you are not to do whatever you want. And so he makes this point here. In another letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so again, the Apostle Paul would argue very strongly, and we'll see in Hebrews 12 as well, that freedom is not having no restrictions. Freedom is not having no obligations, no long-term commitments, no disciplines. Freedom is actually being committed to the right disciplines, being tethered to the right commitments, being anchored in Jesus, and faithfully following Him into holiness. And so Paul would argue very strongly towards that end. And so I want us to see that picture of freedom, and I want us now to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at uh, this chapter. This is where we're going to focus here today. And as you've been introduced to in this summer series, the series is just simply called Passages, meaning we've given freedom freedom uh, to whoever is speaking on a Sunday morning to simply choose the text and uh, pick a passage that has either been a personal favorite for you or one that has been recently impactful for you. And so for me, Hebrews 12 is both of those. Hebrews 12 is a personal favorite of mine, a personal favorite text of mine that has been for many, many years. But it also has been a text that has been uh, recently and personally impactful for me again as I've been spending time in different parts of this text and as it has continued to challenge me. So I want to pick up on this text. And as I was reflecting on this in the last number of weeks, one of the themes that came through for me is this word freedom. And it's interesting and, and it's odd in a sense because if you read the whole chapter, you actually don't see the word freedom once in the chapter. It's not explicitly stated in there. And yet for some reason, and maybe I'm sort of, you know, when you're looking for something, you find it, and maybe that was part of it. But as I have, was reading through this chapter again in, in the last number of weeks for different reasons and reflecting on it, just for me, the theme of th- freedom just came up again and again. And so that's how I want to approach it. And I want to have us look at five different sections of Hebrews 12 through the lens of freedom. So the first one is the freedom of focus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, let's pause there for a moment. For those of you who are familiar with Scripture and Hebrews specifically in Hebrews chapter 11, you know that Hebrews 11 is a text that outlines a whole bunch of people of faith and the lives that they lived in faith and how so many of them actually never saw fulfilled in their lifetime what God had promised them. But they were people who were persevering in their faith remarkably. And so after Hebrews uh, 11 and this list of people and all they'd gone through and even the suffering that they had gone through, even execution and martyrdom for their faith. And then the author goes on and says, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and 
sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. So we, hear, we see here in this text that there is so much that hinders us, so much that distracts us, so much that entangles us. And this text reminds us that there is freedom actually when we focus. We focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our focus is. That's part of what helps us to be free from the entanglements. And he does talk about sin explicitly. Yes, the sin that actually corrupts our lives and holds us captive. But he also talks about other things that aren't sin, just distractions. And says those things that distract us from keeping our eyes on Jesus. And there are many of them. I admit that I am easily distracted. My family knows that. Just ask my wife. But I like novelty. I like shiny new things. I like to start new projects. And my challenge is to stay focused 100% and not to finish a project 80%. And then I move on to something else because there's something new to do. And so distraction comes naturally to some of us. And for others, you persevere and you're way more focused and you can easily focus in. I find distraction very common in my life. And so the writer of Hebrews is reminding us how easily we are distracted. Distracted from what matters. Distracted from what is eternal. Distracted from what actually it is that transforms us, that transforms our lives more and more into the image of Christ. And again, like I said, sin, yes, distracts, entangles us, puts us in bondage, but also so many things that aren't sin, but just distractions that we have to have the ability to see beyond. And so the call to focus is actually a call to freedom. And Jesus is not only our focus, but he is also our example. And so it says to keep our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. So he is the focus of our freedom, but he is also the example of it. And it's an interesting line in here where it says in verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's a really interesting phrase. For the joy set before him. When you think about how Jesus ended his earthly life and ministry here uh, on earth and how he was crucified, died on the cross, a brutal, brutal death, and he knew what was before him. But his eyes were not looking at the cross. His, even Jesus, his eyes were looking beyond that to his eternal, to, to be eternally with his heavenly Father, to see the redemption of all mankind. And so it was even for Jesus, the ability to look beyond what is immediate, to look beyond what is kind of right in front of him, to look beyond the circumstances that are right there day by day and knowing what lay in front, but it was actually the joy of what lay beyond that helped him to walk that road. And so Jesus too for us is to be not only our focus, but also our example. As we go through the challenges and struggles of this life that we can see beyond and that we can see past, that we can see eternity, that we can see a bigger kingdom picture, that God is doing more things than what we just see in our own small circumstances, it helps us to even have joy like Jesus did. The second area I'd like us to look at is, is the freedom of hardship and discipline, which sounds like kind of an odd phrase when you put it together like that, but I think it's quite easy to see that the author of Hebrews pushes us fairly hard in that way. It says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. As his son. And so here it is quoting Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And so Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says a very similar kind of thing and it's this truth that wisdom is found in discipline. And so this idea that freedom is also found in discipline. And it's talking about the loving discipline of a father, of a good father. We often think that God's primary desire for us is to make us happy. Kind of like my little bumper sticker, silly slogan. You know, we think that that's sort of God's primary goal. And yet, when we read Scripture, we don't see that, do we? But it's understandable how we think that. We think that because... Self-fulfillment and personal happiness is the narrative and the pursuit of our culture all around us. So it's not surprising that that seeps into our lives, even as followers of Christ, that we too are influenced by that, that we are influenced by that pull of our culture and that emphasis and theme of our culture continuously. And so it's not surprising that we often would disregard discipline or suffering as actually a mark of a disciple. And actually as an expression of freedom. So in a world obsessed with comfort and security, we're called to step in a different direction. If you look at Mark chapter 8, and we won't look at those Scripture verses particularly, but you may want to look at it on your own. In Mark chapter 8, when Jesus is teaching His disciples and He is asking them, who do you think that I am? And who do people say that I am? And as they respond to Him, and once they rightly say his identity is the Messiah, the very first thing he starts to teach them about is suffering. He says, okay, you understand that I'm the Messiah. Well, here's the road that the Messiah has to walk. Here's what it means to follow in my footsteps. Here's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And he starts to teach them about suffering. And then Peter, if you remember that story, he actually becomes uncomfortable with that and he rebukes Jesus for speaking that way. Well, that's not going to go so well. Jesus, in turn, rebukes him and says, actually, get behind me, Satan. Because you actually have the things of the human flesh in mind, not the things of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, in his call to discipleship, reminds and actually puts front and center the road to suffering as part of discipleship and part of freedom. In Hebrews 12, verse 7, It says, endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. And it's this reminder that when we go through hard things in life, when we go through hardship in life, wherever it comes from, however it comes to us, whatever the cause, it's this encouragement, look at it as God can use this. God can use this in your life to refine you. God can use this in your life to refine us and to make us holy. And so... View it that way. See it that way. Ask those questions. Do we, do we pray that way? Do we say, God, in this current difficult situation, what is it that you're wanting to teach me? Continue to refine me. Continue to make me holy. Continue to make me more like you. Because God, as a loving Father, disciplines us for our holiness. And then in verse 11, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So discipline, suffering, challenge, 
becomes a training ground of God in our discipleship. C.S. Lewis has this well-known quote where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So can we see that there is freedom that is found in discipline and even suffering? The next one is the freedom of grace and holiness. And these are the verses that actually I've been spending the most time on in the last couple of months from this chapter. But it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You know, it's so easy for bitterness to grow up in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, isn't it? This bitter root that holds us back. It says how it causes trouble and defiles many, but it also holds us hostage. Because bitterness eventually just causes us to be people who take easy offense to other people and things they say and things they do. Bitterness starts to seep in and it talks about uh, this root of bitterness. And you know, roots are something in plants that actually draw nutrients from the soil and they feed and are the life-giving system of the plant. And it takes whatever those nutrients are and it brings it to the plant to grow. And so if bitterness is our root then that is going to come through in the fruit of our lives and be very evident. And so there's no freedom in that. It's this bondage, actually. I like how it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone, to be holy, and see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That phrase has really stood out for me. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That means how we view other people, how we interact with other people, how we respond to other people, is we are called to actually see to it that they too receive the grace of God from us. And that's the antidote to bitterness. Is when we can actually express and live out and articulate and extend the grace of God to other people, it keeps us from the bitter root that comes embedded in our lives and starts to change us. And so we are called to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That they too are recipients of God's grace, not just us. We need to receive it ourselves, but that we see to it that no one else falls short of the grace of God. Make every effort. See to it. We have a responsibility. Ensure that others don't fall short. And then there's that holiness thing. It says, and to be holy. Because without holiness, no one sees the Lord. In this next section in verse uh, 16 and 17, I've just called the, the freedom from instant gratification. Because you see, how we live matters. We saw that in the Apostle Paul in Galatians. We see that throughout Scripture. We are saved by grace. And We can't earn it. It is nothing that we can do, but we receive it. But then out of that grace, we are called to live in a particular way. We are called to be made more and more holy by the grace and the power of God through His Holy Spirit. And so we don't just pursue the pleasures and instant gratification of the world. We actually are to hold on for a better inheritance. So let's read verse 16. It says, See see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance 
writes as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You know, when you read that section, that passage right there, it doesn't make immediate sense. You're kind of going, okay, what's the connection? Sexual immorality and Esau's story. Well, let's have a look at Esau's story. And if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 25, at the end of Genesis 25, it introduces us and it talks about Jacob and Esau. These are the sons of Isaac. Esau was the older one. Jacob was the younger one. The older one was supposed to get the inheritance. That's family tradition. The oldest one gets the family inheritance. And so, but Jacob was a deceiver. In fact, that's what his name means, it says. And so, here is Jacob who now is deceiving Esau. Esau was one who liked to hunt and he was often out hunting. And Jacob, it says, liked to remain among the tents. And then it says in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. There's the deceiver part of him. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and then he got up and he left. And so Esau despised his birthright. You know, it's an interesting story how Esau wanted this instant gratification. He says that he was starving. He was so even extreme. He says, I'm about to die. And he needed this food. But what it points to is it points to this fact that he actually gave up a greater inheritance for this instant gratification right now. He was the oldest son who was going to inherit everything of his family and he gave it up for a bowl of stew because he wanted something right now. And in Hebrews it says, you know, we need to have freedom actually from this need for instant gratification. And it says about sexual immorality in a very similar way, Sexual immorality does the very same thing. It's, it's giving up a rich, rich future inheritance for something cheaper now. That we are not to allow the cravings of the moment to outweigh or forfeit the premier gifts of a lifetime, of a greater inheritance. And so often, as we know, we wrestle with that in our spirit, in our human flesh, in our sinfulness. And that's why that it, sex is written so much about in Scripture. As sex is intended for this context of marriage, is between a man and a woman for a lifetime. And yet when we exchange that for instant gratification in any other form, it's saying you're like Esau giving up a future inheritance that is so much greater. Don't give it up. Don't give it up. It's not worth it. God has something better for you. This is the holiness that the writer of Hebrews is calling us to. It's a call to purity, and it's a call to freedom that is found in that. But in our human nature and in our sinfulness, we so often fall short of the glory of God, don't we? That's what it says in Scripture. We fail in these areas of sexual immorality. And then we come to the last part of Hebrews 12, and we see this beautiful picture of the mountain of freedom, what the Gospel is all about. And it's, again, this sort of odd text, but it gives this powerful imagery and it contrasts a mountain of fear and a mountain of joy or a mountain of fear and a mountain of freedom and in verse 18 it says you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm 
to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they, not, they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What's being articulated here is the first covenant. And it's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. The covenant of Moses and what was established there on Mount Sinai, this mountain of fear, and it's reminding these people of, yeah, here's what the old covenant was about. God is a holy God and a righteous God. And and how people trembled, even Moses trembled before God in that moment. But then it contrasts it and says, no, 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 you have not come to that mountain. This new covenant is a different mountain. It is a mountain of joy, a mountain of freedom, a mountain of grace, and it is remarkably different. And it says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have Come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And so now it's contrasting this old covenant of Moses that was established on Mount Sinai with this new covenant of Jesus established at the cross in Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And it's this beautiful picture of this mountain of grace, this mountain of freedom. Even when we've blown it, which we all have, even when we sin, which we all do, even when we struggle with our human flesh, which is true for all of us. And as we stumble towards this transformation, as we stumble towards this holiness that God calls us to, as we stumble towards this picture of of the beauty of God and the holiness of God that we long for but always feel so much out of our reach, God says, yeah, but this is the mountain of grace. Can you receive it? This is the mountain of freedom. This is the new covenant. The new Zion. This is where freedom is found. It's not the old covenant anymore, but all the laws and rules and regulations. But it's about accepting the grace of Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is repent. All God asks us to do is to recognize our sin and our need for Him. And when we do that, what we do is we take us off the throne and we put God on the throne and we submit to Him and we say, You are King of kings and Lord of lords and we are not. And we need this mountain of grace. So Hebrews 12 is this beautiful picture of freedom in so many forms that encourages us, that challenges us to live a holy life, that allows us to receive the grace of God and extend it to others as we walk in this transformation story. Then it says in verse 28, The summary of this chapter says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So Lord Jesus, we just thank You so much for this mountain of freedom, this mountain of joy, this new covenant that is established in Jesus Christ. And God, we just confess that we are sinful people and we come before You and we acknowledge that we mess up so often. And God, we know that You call us to discipline, You call us to holiness because You have a greater inheritance for us. We thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord. Help us not to miss out on the greater inheritance of the things of Your eternal world for giving up of instant gratification in our world today. But Lord, I thank You that 
there is a mountain of grace for each one of us. And Lord, I pray for each person here that we would not feel condemnation or shame. I pray that we would feel freedom and the holiness that you establish within us. And so Lord, we just receive that again today. We give you thanks. And we pray that you would help us to live this out. Help us to continually discover what it means to live in freedom. The way that you've articulated in your word in this place and in so many other places. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.